Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. Thank you for joining us on another episode as we walk through the great battlefields of Europe. If you haven't tuned into recent episodes, please do. We've had ones on D Day. We've had ones on the Somme, we've had the Ypres Salient, we've had all manner of interesting battlefields that we've virtually walked in this new series. A, a recent one that was really popular was the Battlefield of Agincourt, from a, a bit more of an ancient battle. That was a, a really popular download, so I think um, I think people are really getting on board with what we're doing, which is incredibly gratifying. As I said, Pete and I started this to really to fill in a little bit of time during lockdown when we couldn't get out and walk the ground, and it's just wonderful that so many people are joining us on this journey. So thank you for tuning in and joining us on Battle Walks. And joining me, of course, as always, is Pete Smith. Pete, welcome. Thank you, Matt. Good to be back again. Mate, one that's uh, right up your alley this week, a little bit uh, different for me. I have been to this area a few times, but I have not explored it in the detail we're going to today. So I'm really excited, as I hope all our listeners are. We're doing Lakato, a battle from very, very early in the walk. And it's just a really interesting chapter of the First World War. It's, uh, it's in the middle of nowhere, so I have to say it's not one that I regularly go to. I, I take uh, individual clients who sometimes want to follow in the footsteps uh, uh, to the battlefield itself. You can tie it in with Mons, which we'll talk about, the very first action for the, the British Army uh, in World War I. Um, so it's a, it's a great area, and it's also in an area that wasn't utterly obliterated, so it's quite nice for myself. Uh, I live in an area that was flattened to, uh, to go to a, a town, to a, a small town that actually has buildings that go beyond uh, 1920. Tell me about this chapter of the war because you mentioned Mons and then there's also also Lakato, the, the, the first two earliest actions the British Army were involved in during the First World War. So we're talking August 1914 the, in the opening weeks of the First World War. Just, just give us an overview of what the British Army was doing at the start of the First World War and their introduction to fighting on the Western Front. 
Well, their introduction is going to be because of the the German uh, attempt uh, to take uh, France and Paris, and of course that's the key. Happened in 1870-71. They took Paris and France capitulated and they got what they wanted. So this is really what they're aiming to do here. Uh, It's the Schlieffen Plan, difficult word to say, Schlieffen Plan, which is a a plan that had existed for quite some time and had been tweaked and updated. Um, And it's basically, it's an enormous swing, sometimes described as the right hook, uh, coming from Germany, swinging through Belgium, they often describe it, the, the, uh, the, the German soldier on the extreme right, his cuff would touch the channel, um, so that's the, the English channel, and then they would swing in through Belgium into France and, and round Paris. So that was the German plan, very basically. It's not going to work. It's not going to go according to plan. That's partly due to French resistance, Belgian resistance and the British army being thrown in. And the British army will uh, meet them, first of all, at Mons. Very famous, uh, the, the, the fighting at Mons. So I'm just going to give you an idea of, of that mobilisation. That's what it's called when an army prepares for war and gathers itself as to exactly what happens. So the date that the first... Uh, the, the, Britain entered the Great War, the 4th of August in 1914. And the army mobilises on the 8th of August. So in other words, they call up the reservists. I'll explain what that means. They pull, the the men are pulled together. Of course, the big issue is that a good percentage of the the British army is abroad. It's serving in India, in Burma, in wherever, all around the empire. Uh, Malta, just Gibraltar, wherever. And, um, and, Effectively, every regiment has two battalions and one should be in England and one should be around the empire. So that's normally how it works. So this is not the whole of the of the army that is mobilising. It is that 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 is available, which is based in uh, in England. So the 8th of August, we get that mobilisation. By the 13th of August, they're actually in France. By the 16th of August, following uh, several long marches, uh, they're getting towards the front. And by the 22nd of August, just days before the Battle of Mons, they are actually uh, uh, there uh, at Mons. And that's where they, where they get to. So if you just think about it, from a non-war footing to a war footing to ship to uh, being shipped to France, less than a month... One of the big issues is the regular army, even very professional, well-trained, um, a really, really good but very small army still wasn't up to full strength. And that's why you have the army reserve. So I'm just going to give you these numbers. 247,500 regular soldiers. So 247, let's just stick to the, to the 247. 247 regular soldiers. We have 145,000 army reservists. And these are men who had served in the army um, and... Uh, were then within their five years of leaving are held in the reserve. So in other words, after five five years, you're then finished completely. But for five years after you've served, you can be called back. And so those are the army reserves. And then we have the special reserve and the 64,000 of those men. And those are men who have particularly signed up to be to serve in the army if, if they are needed. And normally what that entailed was uh, six months of training, and then they enlisted for six years and they could be called called up within those six years. So you have to think about it a little bit. Those men, six months of training, then called up, not particularly well trained. And an awful lot of the army reservists, if they'd done the full, well, 22 or let's say 20 odd years, then they're going to be getting on a bit. And they may have been out for a further four years, still within the, their five years, and they're going to be called up and 
a little bit out of shape, let's put it, uh, put it that way. So we have the regular army bolstered by the army reserve and the special reserve. And so what that meant, that some of the guys are not as fit as they should have been, and yet they will all be able to shoot. So I'll just go on to that, because this is very important for what is coming, is a trained soldier is trained to hit a man-sized target at 300 uh, yards, and he can hit it 15 times in a minute. And that's uh, that was actually known as the Mad Minute, and it's part of their training. It was known as Practice Number 22, Rapid Fire. And so it was a, a really important part of the soldiers' training. We really, really took a, an important... We, we thought it was very important uh, that a, an English soldier, a British soldier could shoot very well. I must say British, an awful lot of Scots and Irish in the in the army at this time. So they, they could shoot very, very well. And this will help them in what is coming because they are they are going to be completely overwhelmed by an enormous national army because the German army is effectively a national army. Every single adult male um, has been military trained and called up for for this war effectively. I think it's really important that we point that out, Pete, because obviously the two elements are the, the quantity of soldiers you can put into the field, but also the quality of those soldiers. And you'd have to say, looking at the British Army with you know, less than 500,000 troops across all, the, including the reserves, including the regular army, it's a, it's a very small component when you think that the French and the Germans and the Russians were ready in August 1914 to commit literally millions of troops. Uh, the, uh, the the quantity of British soldiers involved in the early days of the war was uh, was was pretty small. Obviously, it grew very rapidly from this point onwards. Um, but you would have to say, in spite of some of the um, you know the, the the lack of fitness of some of the reservists, that, it, that in terms of quality, they were they were good fighting men, weren't they? Oh, oh I- indeed. A-, a little let down by some of their kids because uh, even that's not necessarily correct. They were they'd been issued an awful lot of new kit because it was thought right, get them all kitted out well, issue the the new kit, the new boots, etc. New boots, not ideal for marching. And so this is going to be a kind of recurring theme that uh, they're going to be doing an awful a lot of marching, an awful lot of miles in in France towards and then um, a strategic withdrawal. I kid myself, they are definitely retreating in this case, falling back. Um, So an awful lot of marching and an awful lot of men are going to find it very, very difficult. So talk to us about those, that early arrival in in France, Pete, because, I mean, let's talk about the phrase old contemptibles as well, which is a a phrase that they wore as a badge of honour. How did that, uh, that, that even come about in the first place? Uh, sadly, a lot of a lot of these things that we've learned from school and just from watching documentaries are not necessarily true. And the old contemptible is is sadly uh, one of those one of those issues. I still use the term; it's a very good term. And the men themselves knew them knew and called themselves the old contemptibles. It was believed to have been uh, spoken about by the the, the Kaiser himself uh, that he would crush uh, this little uh, um, uh, contemptible army, this this British army. Um, we're fairly certain that he didn't ever say such a thing, and it's almost certainly a bit of PR from the uh, the, the British point of view, trying to, uh, to to g up really, I suppose, and to and to get that feeling of uh, of how well we're doing and this very small army doing doing unbelievably well. So, but the the men themselves they picked upon it and uh, they became known as the old contemptibles. And after the war, many many associations were formed of old contemptibles, branches all over the country of these men that saw themselves as, as something a little special. And you would have to say, to get through the Great War from start to finish, then you have to be, well, lucky and and well-trained. Uh, but I have to suggest that an awful lot of luck. Um, and so the old contemptibles that made it right the way through the war, few and far between. It's one of those things in history, that phrase, old contemptibles, is it may not actually be true the way that uh, that we portray it. 
but it could have been true. And uh, in times of war and in times of history, that's uh, that's usually enough to uh, to solidify it in our in our in our ongoing memory. So I think old contemptibles is a, is a perfect example of that. And I, I love those phrases that are intended as insults, but then get turned around and and worn as a badge of honor. The rats of Tobruk, you know, is another perfect example when Rommel referring to to the Allies hiding, especially the Australians hiding like rats in the ruins of Tobruk. And then the, the, obviously a rat of Tobruk is now, uh, you know, a, an absolutely huge badge of honour from the Second World War. So I love those little stories. They're important to the history that we, you know, that we remember them and, um, and, and what they meant to the men in particular. It's unbelievable that they were, they went within three weeks from training in their camps in England to being on the front line. Why don't you tell us about some of those early actions they were engaged in and what we're going to be talking about on this walk? Well, today we're going to be talking about Lakato. That's what it's known as. The, the town itself is Lakato Cambrese, um, but everybody just knows this action as Lakato. So it's the second action of the BEF. But before we can talk about it, we need to touch upon the first action, which is Mons. I'm not going to go into great detail about the Battle of Mons because it will be um, featured in a, a future podcast. So we have the, uh, basically the, uh, the Battle of Mons, um, and we are holding these are all holding actions we we know right over from the start we're not quite sure exactly how big the german army is but we know from the start that we're going to have problems in holding the germans so the first action uh, at mons uh, at a place called nimi and it's on a canal and uh, we're going to attempt to to hold the germans one of two locations but this is the one that everybody really concentrates on if you know anything about these early actions it's the uh, the cond canal and Lieutenant Dees uh, and Private Godley, who are both going to be awarded the Victoria Cross when they manned a machine gun on a railway bridge and uh, stemmed the uh, the German advance. I just need to say, say this because it's worthwhile commenting upon. We're reassessing all of these early actions of the war. There are a new work being, uh, being uh, done on them, and I think Peter Hart in one of his podcasts covered it slightly, is we are reassessing the numbers of casualties because they are, they're too high for the German casualties, uh, and uh, it's a, a constant reassessment. It's one of the great, great things about history is we look at it as we get further away, more information becomes available, and certainly in this modern age of computers and uh, web pages and all the other technical devices we can use, we're able to collate a lot more information. So we're, we're, we're reducing the number of, of Germans killed in these early actions. I'm not going to go into the figures because they will come into that podcast when we talk uh, about Mons itself. So we fight at Mons. We don't hold them. We fall back uh, to Lakata, where we're going to be uh, discussing the action uh, today. And uh, this is uh, another holding action but it's part of a holding action and an ongoing withdrawal the problem we have and why this becomes such a crucial uh, battle is that there is a realization that we can go no further uh, really and we cannot hold here without having a break without disengaging because what we're i need to re- rephrase this we are in contact with the enemy in other words the enemy is pushing us back we need to break that contact somewhere and Lakatu is seen as the place that that action needs to take place to uh, to be broken. Now, not by French. French is the overall commander in these actions. Um, and he just wants us to continue withdrawing, to continue falling back, falling back. But General Sir Horace Smith Dorian is aware, and he commands two corps. Uh, one corps is commanded by Haig. And he realises that they cannot keep falling back because the men are, uh, are tired. They need to stop and just just draw breath. And he feels that Lakato is a place where he can do it. That he can. So he, effectively, he he makes it, that decision off his own back to hold uh, two corps 
on the ridges around the town and to attempt to uh, to fight the Germans to a standstill and then break away again, allowing that gap to, to be created, a gap that will allow the the, uh, the remnants, and you have to say that it is reducing in size constantly, but the uh, the, the British army to, uh, to withdraw and break contact. So that's what we're going to be talking about, this fight at Lakato to stem the Germans, to give them a bloody nose, uh, and allow the uh, the rest of the army to withdraw. And was that plan successfully carried out by the British? Yes. Sorry, there's a bit of a pregnant pause there because it is, but it's it's partly accidental in, in some ways. A very tough fighting which we're going to be discussing, but yes, it does. It allows the, the British Army to withdraw uh, in a state where it's still under control, so it's not just all over the place. So we withdraw a strategic withdrawal, it is a retreat. You can't get round it. But it also allow, allows the French uh, to also to gather themselves and we get the Battle of the Marne. And the Battle of the Marne is where we stop the Germans from getting to Paris. And that's crucial that the Germans are stopped from uh, from getting to Paris. And was this a costly battle for the British? It's a very good question. It's costly for all the men that died there. But, but in the bigger picture... It's, uh, no, it's not. It's not particularly costly for the Germans either, but it, but it's an, an action that um, you would have to say, we, we lose, we are losing, because we, we're forced back, we only managed to hold for the morning. So it's a very short period, but, it, but it's, it's unbelievable, isn't it? That just the morning made all that dis- difference that we hold for, uh, for the morning. The, the casualties, our casualties, I'll give you the figures now, uh, 7,812 casualties, now, that, of course, includes the, the prisoners of war that the Germans will take, and they took 2,500 prisoners of war. So that just gives you our, our dead. 7,812, not dead, our casualties. The German casualties, now we used to say, and not that long ago, 9,000. We've now reduced that to 5,000, and there's a belief among an awful lot of historians who have been doing work in the German records that it may be as low as 2,000. So if it is, if it's anywhere between the five and two, then you can see that the German casualties are by far less than ours. And we're going to discuss uh, how that how that happens, why the casualties are particularly heavy, also why we get so many prisoners taken during, during this action. That's part of what we're going to be talking about. And before we start the walk, Pete, we're going to get walking in a minute, but just talk a little bit about the artillery as well, because this was a, a quite a fascinating aspect of the fighting, the, the field guns uh, in action at Lakato. The big issue, and this is where you have to say where Britain has been lagging, the big issue in, uh, in the use of artillery at this period is that there is still a big belief um, in the planning of the artillery positions that it gives the, the infantry confidence if they can see the artillery literally supporting them. So in other words, a lot of the British artillery is direct fire. It's actually looking at the Germans. As the Germans come on, it is going to open fire on them. Now, this is not how you should use artillery at this period. You should have your artillery behind a hill, firing over a hill. You should have a forward observation officer uh, with a field telephone guiding the shots into into your enemy as they come on. But this is not what is going to happen. The bulk of the British artillery is going to be placed in the front line and will be firing directly at the Germans, but the German artillery is over the ridge doing what it should do and pounding our artillery and there's no way that they can respond. Second reason, 
very, very little aerial observation being used because nobody's quite sure. I have to say, this is a, a war of movement, remember, and people are not quite sure where everybody is. And so there's a problem with our aerial reconnaissance as well. And the German forwards, uh, observation officers and aerial reconnaissance have picked out where our positions are very clearly. Uh, not helped by the fact that we are not using reverse slope positions. In other words, hiding on the back of a hill. Most of our positions are forward slope. It's old school again. Forward slope. We can see the enemy approaching but they can also see where we're firing from. So the artillery is going to take an absolute pounding throughout the whole of this action. Uh, they're going to lose. 38 guns will be lost during during the fight. Um, but there's some unbelievable acts of bravery to get these guns out of the frontline positions as they are overrun. Um, and the numbers as well, 230 uh, British guns, 550 German guns. But it's not the number of guns per se. It is where we place the guns that is problematic. Some of the most dramatic accounts of the fighting at Lakato is that final phase where the artillerymen rode in in horrendous fire on their horses and, and limbered them up and, and, and pulled the guns out, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But also a fantastic series of paintings were done depicting this. Whenever you look up Lakato and look for images, there's not a lot of photographs at this time. The image that always the, the images that generally come up are these wonderful stirring paintings of the men on these rearing horses desperate to get these guns out under a hail of fire so really just dramatic bravery from the artillerymen and the artillerymen do get quite overlooked I know we know how important artillery is to the first world war but the men and the horses who were responsible for making sure it was in the right position and firing when it needed to um, sadly get a little bit overlooked compared to the infantry so this is one battle where uh, even though the artillery was poorly used the bravery of the artillerymen really comes to the fore. I think there's a couple of things I should add to that. Uh, so the artillery all horse-drawn here. But the infantry is also horse-drawn in the sense the men march, but everything else, their machine guns, their, their heavy uh, overcoats if they need them, their food, uh, the officers all are mounted on horses still. This is still a period when you know, we are a, a, a very mobile army. So, so there are an awful lot more horses than you would expect, uh, even within the infantry uh, battalion serving at this, at this time. So horses are a big part of, uh, of this battle. Well, let's begin walking, Pete. That's a wonderful overview. Thank you for that. I think particularly for, uh, for our Australian listeners, but also perhaps listeners in the UK and Canada and New Zealand and the US, they may not be as familiar with this battle as perhaps the Somme or Passchendaele later in the war. So thank you for that excellent overview. And I'm really excited about this. As I said, it's not an area that I've been to a lot. I've been to this a few times and I've, I've walked a little bit of the ground, but I haven't done it in this sort of detail. So I'm really looking forward to it. So let's strap on our boots and grab our sandwiches and head out onto our walk. Where are we beginning? Well, we're going to start at a cemetery. It's uh, normally a, a good place to start. It gives you a, a good feel of what went on, sadly, by, by the graves that we're going to be surrounded by. And this is Lakato Military Cemetery. It's a very unusual cemetery, sometimes known as the International Cemetery, and that gives you a clue, really. What we have to remember is this area is going to be lost at this period. So 26th of August, 1914, this is when this action's taking place. And it will be lost. It will be lost during that day to the Germans and will not be taken back until the end of the war. So so this is an area that is not going to be fought over again. It's way, way behind the German lines. And so the burials that take place of those that are killed in 1914 in this, this battle and the surrounding actions, they are actually going to be buried by the Germans. We had no opportunity to bury anybody. So this cemetery, Lakato Military Cemetery, it's a Commonwealth War Grave Cemetery, but its original layout is actually a German layout because uh, these, these soldiers are going to be buried by the Germans. So it's a fascinating cemetery. So we have 
quite a lot of men from 1914, from this period. And then we have men who were died as prisoners of war because this was a hospital area for the Germans from the front line when it's on the Somme when uh, uh, when we're fighting there and all the way down to the Somme and all the way back up to to here we have to we have to fight uh, those areas and so the prisoners that were taken that are dying are going to be buried by the Germans as well as they're evacuated and so they're buried and then we finally have the men who fought here in the um, in the September and uh, uh, of nineteen, actually, sorry, the October of nineteen eighteen, and they're going to be buried in this area as, uh, as well. So we have those guys buried here, uh, here as well, and there's quite a lot of those. Uh, uh, the fighting here was quite uh, quite stiff as they crossed over these areas, and so they're also uh, buried uh, buried here. So it's a, a mishmash, and then of course because it is a German cemetery. The German soldiers bury their dead here. And we have a couple of oddities. We also have uh, a lot of Russians buried here, or in number, perhaps not a lot, not a good term. In fact, it's 34. 34 Russians buried here. So what are they doing here? Well, in fact, they're Russian prisoners of war, captured by the Germans on the Russian front, and being used as labourers. So they were labouring here, um, and uh, they're going to uh, to, uh, to die uh, predominantly of, of, of diseases uh, and bad treatment, I would suggest. Um, and so they're buried here as well. So we have 34 Russian POWs who are, who are buried on this uh, uh, on this this site it's a, a a dual site in other words it is actually interestingly totally looked after by the commonwealth war graves so the german graves are also looked after by the uh, by the commonwealth war graves the whole site is is monitored by the commonwealth war graves but it has all those aspects that we see as the difference between a commonwealth war grave cemetery and a german cemetery lots of trees in german cemeteries and the lawns are are longer so the the, the grass is always longer and we can see that very clearly here the German graves are marked by white stone crosses. So for those of you who haven't ever been to a, a German cemetery in uh, Belgium or France for the First World War, or in fact the Second World War, they're not all the same. You get steel crosses. Well, actually, they look like steel, but they're actually aluminium. So you get aluminium crosses with the names on, so very thin uh, aluminium uh, uh, crosses. You get stones that are set on into the into the lawns, so low to the ground, stones with names on looking up. Uh, you get these... Um, the ones that they have here, these uh, stone-built, uh, stone-carved, or they may even be possibly concrete. I've never been quite sure whether they're concrete or stone-carved. Possibly stone-carved. Um, and they are actually crosses, um, and so they look like crosses, uh, and they're, they're quite big and quite broad. So we get a variation, variations of different type of uh, of markers for the german graves these are in my view are the best they they look they look uh, they stand out and they complement almost uh, the in, in a juxtaposition they look um similar but yet different because these are crosses to the british headstones as we know which are headstones where you can actually get that information that uh, a lot of people wanted that private epitaph written at the bottom the germans don't have that luxury um, so it's a it's a fascinating cemetery to wander amongst and to go and look at these uh, various uh, um, aspects of it. And also what we also have are a few German memorials within the cemetery because this was a German cemetery. Originally, we get um, some little, uh, well, quite large obelisks made out of slate and they are actual German memorials. So there's, there's a lot to look at. You can spend a lot of time wandering up and down, reading the inscriptions on the Commonwealth War Graves headstones and then looking at the German names and realising that very often they're not dissimilar. Um, 
there's also something else that was brought to my attention as I started preparing for this podcast. One of my colleagues here has pointed out that he'd recently discovered that in amongst the German graves, there is a, an English name and he's done a lot of research. And we think that it's an English POW that was buried as a German accidentally and his name appears on the German headstone. So we're doing a little bit of work on, or he is doing a little bit of work on that, some, some research. So all of these fascinating aspects of, uh, of cemeteries that uh, make them are just a, you, you cannot avoid spending time in them because they are so interesting. And even more interesting, Pete, there's a smattering of Australian burials in the, the cemetery. And we should point out the Australians were nowhere near the fighting that took place in these early stages of the war. I mean, they, they were in Australia. Soldiers that listed in Australia were still training in Australia at this stage. We're talking, you know, we're talking here eight or nine months before the Gallipoli landing. So we are talking, uh, you know, from an Australian point of view, incredibly early in the war. So how do the Australians end up here? Well, it's a very good point. And I have to say, I always have a look to see if there are any Australians. Six Australians in this cemetery, but there are going to be more. We're going to be looking at another cemetery towards the end of the walk through the town, which has even more Australians, which is is very strange. So here, six Australians. I had a look at them all. And uh, you can really uh, partly guess why they're here. They are going to be in the main prisoners of war. These are men that were captured at various locations and sadly captured wounded and died as they're moved slowly back. Because everybody gets moved back eventually into Germany into the prisoner of war camps and in that movement back as they they move back sadly those that have been badly wounded uh, very often have to be taken off their transport and moved to uh, to the hospitals to the field hospitals uh, and there and there some are, are going to die um there's also another chap in here, which actually, unbeknown to me, that this is the reason why an awful lot of the Australians are here. He's a, a transportman um, and uh, with the artillery, a driver, and uh, he dies of injuries. I looked up his service file and he actually died of injuries on the 22nd of December 1918. So this is one of these sad aspects, isn't it? We always think of the end of the war, 11th of November 1918. That's it. Everybody gets home. When you come to places like this, it becomes very obvious that there is an ongoing trickle of casualties through a variety of reasons. Of course, we're in the middle of the Spanish flu epidemic, uh, something that's obviously that uh, we now perhaps understand an awful lot more about than uh, than previously because of what's happening at the moment. So um, we have casualties from the Spanish flu. We also have men dying of, of injuries still, the prolonged, uh, horrible, prolonged deaths. Uh, but there's an awful, an awful lot of men that are dying from reasons that you would die for anywhere in the world. They're being run over, they're having heart attacks, uh, they're dying in accidents of all types, especially when men have got all of this weaponry still uh, around them. So grenades going off, kicking shells by accident, and so a variety of reasons. So we get an awful lot of men that are not going to make it home, even though the war's, uh, the war's over. There's also one of the, the chaps I looked up, uh, uh, Private uh, Peasley, uh, 19th Battalion Australian Infantry, well, he was actually uh, captured at Mont St. Quentin uh, on the 1st of September in 1918, an, an action we haven't covered yet in the podcast, but we will be doing. Um, and he got all the way from Peron, being slowly moved back, but will will die of, he, of, his, uh, of his wounds uh, here. So very, very sadly, he'd been shot in the, in the back and uh, a broken thigh bone. Uh, thigh bones are notorious for shock, for killing you because of the, the shock of a, a thigh bone break. So... Sadly, he will make it no further back than here, and he's uh, he's buried here as uh, as well. Um, we also have a chap that will gain uh, be awarded the Victoria Cross. He's a he's a British soldier, 
Um, he did not uh, have his final fight uh, here. He had it elsewhere uh, on the 21st of March, very famous day when the Germans overrun our positions in the German Spring Offensive, and he was holding the line there, and uh, he will... Uh, uh, beat off the enemy and uh, and and do unbelievably. Uh, uh, well, you have to say so, something. Look at what they did. Extraordinary acts, uh, and will be awarded the Victoria Cross. But uh, he, his Victoria Cross will be posthumous because he was captured and will die uh, again on the route back uh, into captivity. So, so we have a, uh, a, a Lance Corporal William Sayer awarded the Victoria Cross, and uh, he's buried in the cemetery as well. Just reading his. Uh... The uh, the what he was uh, from the London Gazette the citation for his Victoria Cross just extraordinary how he fought off those German attacks and I'll just read a small uh, section of that uh, because I think it sums up uh, very well why he was deserving of that award so the Germans are attacking the position that he's holding on as best he can with a small group of men and the citation says they were attacked by rifle and machine gun fire bayonet and bombs he repulsed all attacks killing many and wounding others during the whole time he was continuously exposed to rifle and machine gun fire but he showed the utmost contempt of danger and his conduct was an inspiration to all. His skillful use of fire of all descriptions enabled the post to hold out till nearly all the garrison had been killed and himself wounded and captured. He subsequently died as a result of his wounds at Lakato. Isn't that extraordinary? I, 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 those, some of these citations, they read like a boy's own adventure novel and it does, it does paint a picture of just you know, how, you know, particularly during the, on that day, the 21st of March, 1918, when the Germans were overrunning the British positions, just fighting tooth and nail to hold them back. Just extraordinary stuff. It's, um, it's a date which, which still makes me shiver, the 21st of March. If you were in the front line, anywhere near the, the, uh, the British front lines, uh, on the 21st of March, you did not want to be there because the Germans overran most of the positions. Uh, so it's an extraordinary day and one where uh, extraordinary acts took place to try and hold the Germans back, but uh, uh, with, to, to, to no effect. So the Germans overran all of our front line positions on the, on the 21st of March. So fascinating day. Well, let's uh, leave the cemetery now, an absolutely fascinating cemetery, one of the most interesting that I've been to, I think, and um, let's uh, let's head on to the next site. Which is that, Pete? I'm just going to talk about one more thing, Matt. You know, like, I'm just like, just one more thing before we move off. This, to me, and normally they're interesting, this is a very, very odd memorial uh, in the, in this cemetery, and it's a pyramid. So it's a pyramid uh, uh, larger than, than myself, so I, sh- I would suggest uh, probably about 12 foot, maybe twice as high as, as myself, 12 foot high pyramid uh, on the uh, the outside of the uh, of the cemetery. Actually, it's fairly much linking the, the British cemetery and the, uh, and the German cemetery. And it's inscribed in both German and French, not in English, so that gives you a clue, nothing to do with, uh, with the English. And it's basically commemorating the brave soldiers of France and Germany. So it's a joint memorial commemorating the French and the Germans. Now, I've crawled all over this memorial with the view of what, when was it built and who built it? Because you have to remember, this is uh, 1914, 1918. It's commemorating and the Germans are going to be back and they're not going to, to be doing particularly pleasant things to the population in this area. Um, during the Second World War. So I'm not sure that the French will be very keen to put that up uh, uh, during that period or even after that period. And yet this memorial looks to me that it's earlier than the than, than that. So when on earth was it built? Well, I think I've worked it out because there's no clues. There are no clues. I think it's definitely German. That's the, the whole feel of it. It feels Germanic. 
So it's a German memorial commemorating the loss of German soldiers during the First World War in this area and French soldiers. I think it was put up during the occupation. I think it's an attempt by the Germans to appease the local population by putting up a memorial and saying, look, we may be back again for the second time and we're here to stay this time. So let's start kind of working together. And the first thing we'll do is put up a memorial that commemorates both German and French dead during the First World War. That's the only thing I can think of because it's it's not more recent than that. Um, so that's what I'm going to say it is. You'll have to, when you when you visit your cells, you'll have to make your own mind up of uh, what you when you think and who put it up. But I'm fairly certain German put up during the Second World War. Just extraordinary. It's We've said it so many times on the podcast that, that history just keeps repeating in these corners of, of Europe. And that's an extraordinary example of it and, uh, and just the, the repercussions of both the First and Second World Wars. Good, very good pickup, Pete. I, I look forward to seeing that again myself when I go there. It's these little kind of facets of the battlefield that you can miss so easily that, that actually really bring the stories to life and bring history to life. So I love pointing them out. Well, it's a great find, Pete. And um, where are we heading next on the walk? So we're going to head into town. You can leave your car here if you wish. It's a, it's a feral walk. We're going uphill, over the hill, and then down uh, into the outskirts of the town. And this is the outskirts of Lakato. So let's just talk a little bit about Lakato as to uh, how many people live here. So it's a population of 7,000. Now, I have to say, this is a very attractive uh, town and is massively overlooked by almost everybody. The people that come to the battlefield tend to go to this cemetery... Um, and I should say what I didn't mention is the cemetery is actually in, in the heart of the battlefield. It's where the Germans uh, start to uh, attack the, ridge, uh, the ridges and that's where the British Army is on. So we were in the heart of the battlefield when we stood in the cemetery. Um, so most people stand there, do a little bit of the story and then they jump in the car and they head towards Mons or they're perhaps coming in the other direction. They don't even bother to go into the, the town centre. Uh, Lakato is very attractive. It wasn't totally flattened, so it's got an awful lot of very old buildings, uh, very well renovated. And it's what a lot of the towns, we've, we've talked about Bapum, we've talked about some of the smaller uh, villages uh, around, it's what they would have all looked like. They were all had a Flemish edge to them. They're all part of the Spanish Netherlands. So we're going back in history again, as we have in previous podcasts when we're discussing this area. It's on the border of Belgium, so very close to the, to the border of Belgium. So right on the, uh, the hinterlands of France, northern France. It was an attractive town and it still is an attractive town. So that's the first thing to say. Make the effort to come into the town because there's an awful lot to see when you come into the town as well. So population 7,000. We're going to walk into the town. The first thing we're going to see is a very, very big building on the left-hand side. Neoclassic. Uh, it's called the... Uh, and I'm going to say it in French. So it's the Palais Fenilon. So the Palace of Fenilon. And it's the former second home of the Archbishops of Combray. Now, Combray is the largest it's a city, the largest uh, place to hear. And so this town aligns itself with Combray. And the Archbishops of Combray had a, basically had a, a holiday home here. That's not quite what it is, but it, it's a very smart residence here. Uh, and they, they were the people that originally it was the uh, people from Combray who set up this town. So this town, going right back into, into the annals of history, this is a, a town that was set up and it has always been linked to, to Combray. Um, it is now the museum for Henry Matisse, the, the artist. So it's, uh, again, if you've got the time, certainly go and visit the museum. It's the third largest collection of his paintings in, in France. 
Of course, it was also used by the Germans. It was a German headquarters during both the First and Second World War, interestingly. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, so this is the first building that's well worth going to have a look at in the Henry Matisse uh, Museum. So we're then going to walk into the town and perhaps the, the next most uh, striking building is actually the, uh, the town hall, the uh, Hotel de Ville, as it's, uh, as it's uh, known. Um, it's again, it's very old, 1553 when it was constructed. It's the original building. It's, it's been tweaked, obviously, in, in that time. A belfry was added in 1705, but it has that look as if it should be nearer to Ypres. Um, because, of course, it's the same architecture. It is that Flemish architecture. This is a, was a Flemish region, um, and it was run by the Spanish for a long, long time. It's part of the Spanish Netherlands, so it has that slightly Spanish feel with a uh, with that those those Flemish um, uh, crinolated fronts. That's not quite the term I'm looking for, but I think you'll know what you mean if you look at the picture of a Flemish house. You'll know you'll know what I mean. So, uh, fantastic, beautiful uh, town hall. It also is well worth having, a, I always go and look at the town halls because they are they hold the history very often in the town halls and what we have on the front of it is a list of citizens uh, shot by the Germans uh, during the First World War, which is very sad until you read it, it's all in French, but you have to read it very carefully and you realise that the majority of these, these uh, citizens were shot for keeping pigeons. So it's, you think, well, what's that about? Well, of course, what they're talking about is about carrier pigeons. It's the passing of messages. The Germans became obsessed that we were passing information uh, or that the civilians were passing information to uh, to uh, the, the French or to, in fact, the, the British or to anybody, really, uh, that uh, that they could pass information to that, that would then be smuggled back to, uh, to to England. So So pigeons were a big thing. Now, what the French... I suppose what the Germans wouldn't have understood is that a lot of French people in this area kept pigeons. Why? For food. They, they were a, a food stock. Rabbits and pigeons always been eaten in the north of France. So a lot of these people kept them. They kept their pigeons. I, I think you could almost say almost none of them were passing information back to anybody. They were eating the pigeons because food became scarce as the war went on. Um, and uh, But it cost them their lives. Seven of the people on this list were executed for having pigeons. Just a tragic story and something we probably can't comprehend through the passage of time, just the, the, the brutality of the occupation. And we, we, we know about the brutality of the occupation in the Second World War, but I think we overlook um, the, how the French and Belgian towns that were occupied, the Germans, occupied by the Germans also struggled during the First World War. Not as bad as the Second World War, you would say in general, but still uh, pretty, pretty tough conditions to be occupied for several years. I think the the key here is that the civilian population was still in in situ. This is when the German army is moving quickly. Obviously, as we get uh, as the German army approaches the the Somme, then the population there were aware of what had happened. There were rumours, there were exaggerations, and of course, those exaggerations are are being used to to fire up the men who are going to try and attempt to hold the the German army as it advances towards Paris. But what we uh, what we get is uh, the people there starting to evacuate ahead of the arrival of the Germans. Here they didn't. The civilian population was completely intact in the uh, in the town. Very few people had left, and it was being viewed a little bit like 
previous wars where the, the Germans or the attacking army would be there for a while, they'd smash a few windows and then they'd withdraw or there'd be some kind of peace treaty or, or, or whatever, which would mean that the, the town life could continue. Uh, here, that's not going to be the case. The Germans will not withdraw and they're going to be here for the next four years. So they had a long, long road ahead of them for the uh, civilian population here, which uh, will, will continue doing what they'd always done. They continued farming, they continued trading. Uh, the only thing that changes, they're trading with the Germans and the Germans are also taking an awful lot. There was a percentage of everything that the farmers grew, and it is, I think, don't quote me on this, but I have a suspicion it's something like 80%. 80% of what they were growing was being taken by the by the German army for supplying the German army. So so they're, they're in for a tough, uh, a tough time. Just a fascinating chapter of the history of the town, Pete, and uh, what else are we going to look at while we're in the town? Well, we're going to go to a memorial now known as the Suffolk Memorial, um, it is commemorating the Suffolks, but it's commemorating others as well. But it is where the Suffolks had their last fight during the battle. So it's to the west of the town. So we go towards the school. So if you look for the signs for the school, for those that are, are walking this route. Um, and it's a difficult one to find. So there's no signage. So you do really need to have found a map that shows where it is. It's just before you get to the school, little uh, lane on your right-hand side. Walk up there, up out of uh, all the houses, and you can see it ahead of you. There's a few trees around it. It's well looked after. The interesting thing is, and I've just been following a debate about who actually looks after it. It's a, a, a squat limestone obelisk. It's big again. It's about 12 foot high. Uh, quite squattish though. Um, and it carries the names of regiments and very, very unusually, the names of the dead from each of those regiments. So it names men by names who died in the fighting here, It's which is extraordinary. I don't recall another memorial that carries the lists of the of the dead partly you have to say because for most of the uh, the great war battles that uh, follow this the dead the lists of the dead are so enormous that they couldn't fit onto a memorial relatively speaking the, the numbers of dead here even though they're high for that for that uh, very small fight for a morning they're still do, uh, not a patch on the later actions so it's beautiful beautifully kept uh, the lawns are cut but as far as I'm aware, it's not the Commonwealth War Graves. They don't look after it. So I think it's the town. I think the town looks after it and, uh, and ensures that this uh, looks uh, very nice. Occasionally, there are a few bottles and tins up here because the school kids, obviously, at lunchtime come up here and have uh, have picnics around it. But I don't. It, it, generally speaking, it's uh, it's in lovely condition. So it's known as uh, Suffolk Hill as well, uh, and it uh, it is their final their final fight. It's where the Suffolk uh, the regiment. Um, fought itself, well, you have to say, almost uh, almost uh, out of existence, remembering that a uh, battalion, so this is the 2nd uh, Suffolk uh, Battalion, um, and 2nd uh, Battalion of the Suffolk Regiment, which better way of saying it, normally a 1,000 men at full strength. Um, we've perhaps discussed in previous podcasts, they are never at full strength. There's always a, a cadre of men kept out of the battle, but it will be getting on for full strength here. And by the time they've fallen back to near to St. Quentin, where it's the first time they can call a muster, they can call a roll, there are only two officers left, and both of those are, one's a transport officer, the other one uh, organised the, the, the whistling of the battalion, so wouldn't have been in the fight anyway. So two officers and 111 other ranks, that's all that's left out of the, the whole of the battalion. So uh, for that, you could say the battalion's wiped out effectively in, in the fighting in the first months of the uh, of the war. We are also commemorating on the same memorial the 2nd Manchester Regiment, 
and the second Argyll and Sutherland Highlanders, they are all fighting in this area. Interestingly, the King's Own Yorkshire Light Infantry also fought uh, in this area, and, and they're not commemorated on the memorial. So I don't quite uh, quite understand why and uh, who was picked. Also, the 15th Brigade Royal Field Artillery is on the memorial, and, and their men uh, that died are, are, are commemorated here. So it's an extraordinary memorial. It's well worth taking the effort to, to go and have a look at it. And it is, in fact, the only memorial commemorating the whole Battle of Lakato per se. The other memorials are in fact the cemeteries so well worth having a look at and certainly it's one that i normally spend quite a bit of time at because you get a view down into the town from it and you also can't quite see the cemetery that we've come from the original cemetery that we started off you can't quite see it but you can look over that way and get the feel of the german hordes coming towards you here now i just found i read something very interesting only a couple of days ago that some of these trenches upon here were dug by the local population. So that's interesting, isn't it? That the local population, non-combatants, came out ahead of this action knowing that this could be a stopping point and started digging trenches on this ridge ready for the, the British army to fall back to here. Some of the soldiers moaned slightly that the trenches were dead straight and, of course, what you need is a zigzagging trench to give you any kind of protection. These were straight. But I just find it interesting that the civilian population, prior to the arrival of the Germans, had become involved uh, in, uh, in digging trenches it may be why the Germans uh, uh, took it out, took out reprisals on some of the civilian population in the in the area, but uh, yeah, just a fascinating little little aspect of the of the fighting here. You said the word fascinating, Pete, and I think that's one of the things that's really interesting to to me in this area is that we have perceptions about the First World War based on our our knowledge of it, uh, looking back through the lens of a century of, of time having passed. We have perceptions about how the First World War was fought, the the mud and the blood and the the stalemate and the trenches and the barbed wire. What we have to remember is in places like this, that hadn't happened yet. You know, that didn't happen by chance. That, that, That was an evolution that came about later in the war. And none of that had occurred yet. This was the earliest stages of the fighting. No one knew how the First World War was indeed going to going to look or going to end. And so it was unusual in the in the uh, in the context of the rest of the war. And what I'm feeling as we walk around here is there's fascinating little unusual elements to still still see that reflect that. As you say, there's unusual little memorials. The cemeteries are laid out in unusual ways. It's it's reflective of the fact that the First World War hadn't really gotten going yet at this point, and no one knew uh, what was to come. Uh, ad hoc would be the the word I think, um, and and it feels like that. So that's why I actually enjoy it because it feels a little bit more ad hoc. Um, and it was Sir Horace Smith Dorian that actually unveiled this memorial. So this m- m- memorial obviously meant an awful lot to the men who had fought here. Uh, interestingly, it's very hard to find photographs of it. It's very hard to find information of it. And I hope one day to come across a picture of it of the unveiling of it. But I haven't yet managed to find find one anywhere anywhere. Uh, and it was unveiled on the 26th of May in 1926 by, by Smith Dorian. So he, he made the effort to come all the way back from the UK. And I'm, I'm sure with lots and lots of comrades who'd fought here um, from the, uh, the old comrades associations. Uh, and they had their, their uh, commemoration and their unveiling on the 26th of May in 1926. As you said earlier on, there, there, you, there wouldn't have been too many men that survived all the way through from Lakato on to the rest of the war. Perhaps men who'd been wounded in those early actions. And, and evacuated, never came back to the war. But you'd, you wouldn't think there'd be too many men who were fighting here in the earliest days of 1914 and then were still here at, at the armistice at the end of 1918. 
It's very interesting uh, when you see photographs, and most battalions had these photographs taken. So photographs of the men that served right the way through from the start of the war or their first battle uh, to the end of the war. And let's take a photo of them. Well, they are not big photographs. It's half a dozen men at the most, and you can fairly much say the transport officer, the perhaps the signalling officer, and some of the rear echelon men of the battalion uh, will be there, uh, but the, the bulk of them are not. So five, six, ten, twenty men, uh, uh, those are the ones that uh, were still serving with the battalion. Now, don't get don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean that everybody else was dead or wounded. A, a lot of them have been promoted and promoted out of their battalion, so they ended up serving the war somewhere else. These are men that served from start to finish, but it's normally just a half a dozen for most of these battalions that were serving here in the early days. Well, it's a fascinating memorial, Pete. What's uh, what's next on this fascinating walk around the Lakato battlefield? I'm just going to comment again on something that uh, I've missed earlier on, and, and it was something that uh, Smith Dorian said, and I just felt it needed uh, it needed saying. This is a quote of his: "When I'm, when men are too tired to march, they must lie down to fight," and I think that gives you a, an idea of how exhausted the army was that's fighting here at Lakato. Also, I should point out that they hadn't been fed particularly well because all of that was was starting to break down the the feeding. The field cookers couldn't get any hot food because they're falling back constantly. In fact, I'm sure some of the field cookers had been abandoned. Um, And so we get an idea that this action that took place on this hill that was standing at the Suffolk Memorial was one of men that were tired but who still could fire 15 aimed rounds a minute and and that is what is going to hold back the Germans and and give them a a bloody nose. Now, those units that we've just been talking about, the Suffolk's, the Manchester, the Argyle and Southern Highlanders, they did not withdraw when everybody else did. As as, uh, the second corps, two corps were withdrawn, these men either didn't get that information or decided that it had already gone. The, the the attempt to be able to, or the chance of withdrawing, had already gone. So most of these units fought it out to the last man. Uh, and there's some great first-hand uh, hand, uh, 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 accounts of them. I'm just going to see if I can track one down. I, I, I'm... So this is just an account, and this is the, somebody listening back to the fighting taking place on this, uh, on this mound, on this, this hill, uh, the Suffolk Hill. Uh, on the way back during brief lulls in the shelling, they could still hear the sound of rapid fire in the line and behind it the faint notes of a bugle. In front of the Argyle and Sutherlanders, the Suffolks, the Germans were uh, sounding the British ceasefire. So the Germans know our calls and they're trying to get the men to, to surrender effectively. They're trying to, a combination of trick them to stop firing and then, uh, then they cause them to surrender. Some, so, these are the Germans. Some stood up waving and gesticulate to encourage, to encourage the British to surrender. The Highlanders took aim and coolly picked them off. Two of their officers lying side by side shouted out the hits for all the world as if they were umpiring a shooting competition. They had knocked up quite a score when a detachment of Germans rushed them from behind. They had been fighting for nine hours, but at last they were overwhelmed. So it gives you that feeling of these men who have decided that they can't easily withdraw, they're going to try and do some good with their with the with the last hours of their lives in holding the Germans back because they knew what it was for. They knew this was to give us time to to break away from the Germans and with and withdraw. And they fought it out to the to the to the last man on this ridge where we're standing. Just stirring stuff. You you that that word overwhelmed. You hear that used so it's such a such a military euphemism. And eventually they were overwhelmed. And what that means, you know, most of them killed. Some of them, the lucky ones, captured. 
you know, killed or wounded and just the, the, the horror of those final moments. Really terrible to even contemplate. It doesn't sound pay- painful somehow when you say overwhelmed, does it? <laughs> <laughs> no. As, as we said, to, to try and soften the blow, like uh, forced to withdraw is the other, uh, the other one apart. You know, they didn't retreat, they were forced to withdraw. Where to next, Pete? So we're going to head back down the road again, so to uh, return back into the town and go and have a look at what else we can we can find in the town uh, that uh, reminds us of, of what went on here. I, I should just ask, a, a, add a little bit more about the the history of uh, of the town. The town itself was famous. Now it may be famous uh, to to some, and especially to those that uh, know their earlier history. But the Peace of Locato Cambrese was signed in 1559 here at the town. So uh, uh, very famous for those that are interested in the history of, the, of that period. And perhaps I should do a future. I keep coming across this date, so I perhaps need to do a podcast about it at some time. And this was a treaty between the rulers of France, England, and Spain ending a 65-year struggle for control of Italy. Now, if you have listened to our previous podcast from Bullcourt, you'll know that I was discussing the Ninth Italian War. Well, it's the same war. So that explains it a little bit more, that why we're fighting in an Italian war in this part of the world. It's because we are fighting about who is going to rule Italy. So that's what it was about. And interestingly, that treaty also saw the giving up by England of its last French enclave of Calais. So this is the period of Elizabeth the first we're talking about uh, and uh, we are going to pull out of France at last for the for the final time as we uh, as we hand Calais back to the uh, to the the French um it was actually this area was run as I've mentioned already by the Spanish Netherlands up until 1678 so that's why we have a slightly Spanish uh, Flemish feel to everything that's built here that's there any kind of age to it uh, and it was eventually ceded to France as part of the Treaty of Nijmegen Again, another name in Holland, Nijmegen, a name that we will hopefully come across in a future podcast as we'll be talking about the bridges at Nijmegen, a Second World War battle. So you realise that warfare is just all around us and uh, it does. Sometimes uh, Sarah, my partner, despairs about the human race because we, you just get these layers and layers of warfare going over and over over the same the same areas. Just extraordinary stuff. Thank you, Pete, for that, uh, that extra contribution. As you say, it's important that we understand that the First World War was not the first time that this uh, area was touched by warfare. In fact, the local people were probably well used to it by the time the First World War rolled around, both uh, both practically and uh, historically as well. Just a, an extraordinary area of, of, of Europe. So next thing we're going to come to is a, a rather uh, stunning statue of a man in full military dress, Napoleonic-style uh, dress, and this is a statue of uh, Edouard Mortier, um, who was one of the marshals of the uh, the empire. So we're talking about the period of uh, of Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, and he um, uh, was a... Uh, born and, uh, here in the town, along with, as we've already discussed, Matisse. So he's uh, well remembered in this uh, enormous bronze statue of him. He also became the 13th Prime Minister of France as well, so an important, uh, important position. Um, the one thing we can't see, and I should state, we are standing on them. As we stand uh, in the, the square, there's a small square here in the, the centre of the town. Great, by the way, for getting your fritz and your beer here. A uh, good place for stopping as you're resting your weary feet. 
I should also add there's a there's a, a brewery in the in the town which is a very old brewery which is very famous. I think you can actually organise trips to go and see it. I've never been to see it myself. Perhaps I should. Um, so a very old brewery uh, within the town. But beneath us, as in most towns in in northern France, we have a, a vaulted chambers and caves and caverns that sadly we can no longer go into. And apparently they are there is uh, graffiti from all the walls that that were here. They're very beautiful. These underground vaults, very often brickwork and stone work uh, within them but at present not open to the public so i'm hoping that uh, there's at some stage in the future these will become open because they're very historic i, su- I suspect we can also see fragments of the town walls which had last been re- renovated in 1637 um, and they're over various uh, periods uh, in the history up until the modern times they've been destroyed but there are still remnants of the walls so you can spot little bits of the old town walls uh, all over and the final thing, non-military, that we should talk about is the, uh, I have to say, fantastic uh, Church of St. Martin uh, de Cater, which is just extraordinary. Uh, built in 1634, and it's a Spanish-Flemish influence again. It, it is, it looks Spanish. It looks like it should be in Spain. It's beautiful. Uh, well worth going to have a look. Again, I've not been inside it, but uh, I suspect it, uh, yeah, it's well worth going to have a look at. Just extraordinary sights in the town. It is a beautiful town. I've only been there one or two times, but it is a lovely little town and uh, well worth spending a bit of time there. Particularly, you did uh, pique my interest with the comment of beer and uh, and and frites, and a nice a nice steak and frites and a and a, and a cold beer is uh, is a, is a welcome reward after traipsing the battlefields. But we should we should stick to the history. And not get too distracted. Where are we? Where are we heading to next? So I always look at these. I, I just feel that you have to look at them now. A lot of people don't bother. This one is particularly beautiful. The town war memorial. So this is the war memorial commemorating all of those Frenchmen who left this town. Remember, left it presumably ahead of the Germans arriving. They would have been actually called up to the the French uh, the, their army. The the men would have been called, so they would not have been in the town when the Germans arrived. Um, and uh, this is the memorial to all of those men that uh, that were killed. So it's a uh, beautiful bronze of, of a female so it's France depicted as a female holding a wreath in one hand and the flag of France in the other this is, this is in bronze gazing down on the body uh, of a, a dead soldier so it's a beautiful beautiful memorial it's in a place called the Parc Fenelon uh, and these these names sometimes of the roads give it away Rue de Polu so uh, de la Grande Guerre um, so effectively the road of the soldiers of the Great War um, uh, where it's uh, uh, where the, the memorial is so it gives you a clue um, and on the back of it I always look at the back of these things there is a fantastic little uh, bronze depicting uh, a German light Renault tank going into action against the Germans with the French uh, cheering behind it as it runs over a group of Germans so uh, I always like little images of the uh, of the French Renault tank. The, the French are very proud of their little light tank that they produce in the war, very successful uh, tank. So that's depicted on the back of the memorial. And this one was inaugurated in 1923. Um, I read an account just recently that it was inaugurated, but the bronze wasn't actually on the memorial when it was inaugurated because it hadn't got there in time. So things don't change. Uh, uh, that's a fairly common occurrence nowadays. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, it arrived slightly later, but it was inaugurated in 1923 only a few stops left on the walk pete now to to uh to cover the battlefield of lakato what's uh, what's coming up next 
One of the things before we leave the centre of the town that I must just suggest that you pop in to go and have a look, and I can't even tell you anything about it because I've been unable to find anything about it other than the fact it was donated to the uh, to the um, the town, and it is a British field gun from the 1950s. So after the uh, after well after the First World War, and I've actually seen it in a couple of guidebooks uh, just literally commented upon as a First World War field gun. It certainly isn't. So well worth just popping the library and go and have a look at it. Uh, that's all I can suggest because. Very very little information about why it's there, other than it's obviously commemorating a battery that fought uh, here during the uh, during that action. Just a few more things to look at before we leave the town and head off to the final cemetery that we're going to look at, and that is a very odd uh, divisional memorial. The 66th British Division um, commemorated its men here. And how did they commemorate the men? Well, it's a stone uh, horses drinking trough that is uh, in the centre of the town. Um, and you may think, why on earth would they do that? Well, of course, horse is still a big part of life. And I think the division felt they wanted to, to rather than a memorial, just just a memorial, to put something in that was useful to the town. Now, it's no longer used as a, as a, a horse's drinking trough. It's got flowers in it, so it's very attractive. And on the front is emblazed and in memory of those of the 66th Division of the British Expeditionary Force who fell in the liberation of Lakato from German occupation in October 1918. So I think it's a great little, very small, low-key memorial uh, commemorating the 66th Division. Uh, just as a matter of uh, of interest, the battalion that got into the town the first were the 5th Connaught Rangers, so an Irish battalion were the first infantry to get into the, uh, into the town in the October. Just before we get to the cemetery, and this is the communal cemetery, the town communal cemetery, we have another very sad memorial. This is known as the Execution Memorial, and it's commemorating the execution of five civilians on the 27th of November 1914. Uh, so just a little memorial, and it lists the names of those again who were killed at that period. And it is really the Germans stamping on the civil population early on in the occupation to say, don't do anything because we're not going to put up with it. Uh, so uh, very, very sad in, in, in many ways. And then we're going to move into the uh, civil cemetery. Now, the, the civil cemetery, Locato Communal Cemetery, contains a, a number of graves. It's got an enormous 15-foot wall around the cemetery, so I think they were worried about body snatchers. And there are 150 soldiers uh, of the Great War uh, in the Commonwealth War Graves sector. Well, they're actually scattered around it, but they are buried within uh, the, uh, the cemetery, of which 101 of them uh, are identified. Now... This is where it gets slightly odd. 13 of those men are Australians uh, of, the, uh, of the, uh, the named men, the 101 who are, who are named. And to me, that really surprised me as to why there were 13 Australians here, because they certainly wouldn't be involved in the fighting in 1918. As far as I was aware, all Australians had been pulled out of the, uh, the front lines on the 6th of October. And here we are uh, a, a lot uh, later than that, and it's nowhere near here. But they are all men who died in the December of 1918. So these are men dying of what I, what I stated earlier. So 13 Australians, I haven't looked at them individually, and I must do, because I'll be interested to find out exactly what they are dying of. And it's all different dates, there's no set dates. So these are men who are dying in the rough and tumble of that period after the war before they are going to uh, find their way on their boats back home to Australia. So very sad, 13 Australians all dying in December, buried in the, the little local cemetery here. So, so uh, just extraordinary. As you said earlier, Pete, in the discussion, it was um, you know just a just a tragedy that the war was over. These men, you know, should have been looking forward to heading home, and instead they're meeting their fate. They're still uh, they're still dying in uh, not insignificant numbers. 
right up until the very end of 1918 and well into 1919 as well, sadly. Yeah, yeah, just very, very sad. The other thing that I need to point out here, because there's an extraordinary, again, it's the carrying on with that connection to Australia, is that in the fighting here, and of course, we, we, we as was mentioned earlier, Australians not even fighting at Gallipoli yet and will not arrive until 1916 onto the Western Front uh, in France. And yet here we have an Australian soldier being killed uh, or being mortally wounded and dying a day later. Uh, at uh, at the Battle of Lakato, and he was Lieutenant William Chisholm, and he was serving in the First East Lancashire Regiment, Eleventh uh, Brigade, Fourth Division, Third uh, Corps. So right in the the thick of the fight uh, of the fighting, as they're withdrawing, actually they became involved as they start to withdraw, and he had been wounded on the twenty seventh, and he died the following day, and he's buried at a place called Linien Cambrese. Um, and uh, he is now recognised as the very first Australian to uh, die in the First World War. So he'd been born and raised in Australia. In fact, he went to Sydney Grammar School, um, but his family will move to England in 1910. He moved with them. Um, his father was actually a, a surgeon, an eminent surgeon, and he will uh, go to uh, the British Military College and uh, and eventually uh, join his regiment and, and be sent out to the Great War. In fact, he died or he was mortally wounded in his very first day of combat. So very, very sad, really. Um, it gets even sadder because in 1928, uh, his father and uh, and one of his other, other uh, sibling came out with his mother's ashes because his mother had never really recovered from his death. Uh, she was his fair, her first son and uh, her ashes are now buried uh, alongside uh, him in the, uh, the civil uh, cemetery at uh, a place, uh, as I said, called Linny uh, uh, N. Uh, Combrezi, and uh, they now lie uh, lie together. And in fact, their family home in now, Matt, you will have to correct me on this. Wallahara, <laughs> Wallara, very very good, mate. Wallara, <laughs> I was close. It was close. Their their family home was actually called Lini uh, because of the because of the loss of their uh, their son in the town. So very very sad story, but interesting that uh, this is where the first Australian uh, sadly was mortally wounded and will die the following day. It's a great story, and um, and Chisholm's rifle is uh, on display. If you're in Sydney, he's, uh, he was from New South Wales, obviously, and his rifle is on display at the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park in that wonderful new museum there. And a shout-out to Brad Manera, the director of that, uh, that wonderful memorial and the great work he did on the rebuilding of the museum now underneath the memorial in, uh, in Hyde Park. So go definitely, if you're in Sydney, go to... It's now open again, thanks to, uh, thanks to COVID restrictions. It's now open again, so definitely, if you're in Sydney... Go and see the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park and the wonderful new museum, um, and uh, and hopefully Brad Manera will be there to uh, to say hello and show you around. But uh, just extraordinary, and you'll get to see Chisholm's rifle, which is on display there as the first the first Australian killed during the First World War. Just really fascinating stuff, and we should remember that Pete that the we talk about Australians fighting in a specific area and British soldiers fighting in a specific area. We should always remember that they may when we say British or Australian or Canadian, we're talking about the the national representation it doesn't mean that the men from fighting in those units are all from that country and in fact i've i've read statistics that one third of all the men who fought in the australian military in the aif were from britain the, the, we 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 don't realize how much people moved around even a century ago we seem to think it's a modern phenomenon but it absolutely wasn't people moved all over the world particularly throughout the british empire so we had we had Britons and Scots and Irishmen living in Australia. We had New Zealanders living in Canada. We had Canadians living in India. We, and, and these people would then join uh, the local units when, when war was declared and go off and fight and in many cases die. So never forget that, that there was a, a huge mix of, of nationalities 
contained within all of these units. I yeah, I often just describe them as men of the empire because I don't think they they settled. Uh, they went where the money was effectively. So whether they be gold miners or sheep shearers or whatever business they were, sailors, whatever business they were employed in, they very often spent time around the empire wherever they thought they could uh, they could make a little bit of money and then moved on again. And when the Great War started, wherever they were, that's the units that they joined. One of the probably the most famous examples from an Australian perspective is. The you know the the arch typical Anzac the good Aussie bloke Simpson with his donkey in yeah, absolutely one of the most famous Australians Simpson was from South Shields in uh, in England he uh, he well, from the north of England he spoke with such a strong accent that the Australians called him Scotty because they thought he was Scottish his uh, his northern English accent was so strong so he was a Geordie through and through so the one of the men that is considered the most famous of all Australians in wartime Simpson was not even Australian just a fantastic demonstration of the empire and the men who roamed all over it and then did did their bit when the time when they were called to they when the war broke out wherever they were they joined their local unit and went off and fought and died with those i'm i'm also reminded that uh, at uh, tiepval the famous british memorial uh, on the somme that records men killed in the somme there are no australian units recorded on that memorial however there are 55 australians who are recorded on the memorial who were killed while fighting with british units so we should just never forget chisholm's a great example of that we should never forget the, uh, the international nature of the men who are fighting as part of the British Empire. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Pete, it's been a, uh, a wonderful journey through a, a battle that, you know, it doesn't get as much attention as it should compared to the Somme and Passchendaele and these, uh, these other great conflicts of the First World War. And I'm just really pleased that we had a chance to, to virtually walk across these fields. And I look forward, mate, once we can, to uh, getting out and doing it, uh, doing it for real. Just thank you so much, Pete, for your insights into this. It's, uh, as always, it's been wonderful. No, it's it's been nice to talk about it because I think it's somewhere that uh, certainly for an awful lot of people who go to the the popular sites of the Great War go a little bit off 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 piste occasionally, and uh, this is this is one of those sites that definitely need could do with a few more tourists to go and have a look at it when we can travel again. It is a it's a gr- a great little battlefield, but it's also a great little town to uh, to go and uh, explore. Very well said, and that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for tuning in. If you like what you're hearing, please uh, support us. Go online and uh, send us a message through Twitter or Facebook. We now have Twitter and Facebook pages uh, dedicated to the Battle Walks podcast, so look those up on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you very much to Sarah, your partner, Pete, who, who put those up, uh, and we'll be maintaining those and adding photos from every uh, every episode of the podcast. So go to go and find Battle Walks on Twitter and Facebook. Send us a message Also, as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please review it wherever you get your podcast, particularly on Apple Podcasts. That's very important to the ongoing success of everything we're doing. Thank you for joining us, Pete. Thank you for joining us on Battle Walks. No, it's been been great. I'm I'm looking forward to getting some of the photographs of some of the sites that we're talking about because I think it will help. It will help people to have an understanding if they can see a little bit more about what we discuss. Absolutely, and we'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.